Welcome, Welcome to the East, to the East Dramacast. Dramacast. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Check out the awesome educational content at east.org, including our sister podcast, CareerCast. You can find East Minutes on our YouTube channel and follow all the latest news on Twitter at East underscore trauma. Now, on to the TraumaCast. All right, welcome back to another TraumaCast. We have a very relevant uh, topic today. We're going to speak about the current IV contrast shortage, what it is and how it's impacting your practice. I'd like to thank Humanetics for their unrestricted educational grant for the Educational Resources Committee in support of the TraumaCast. I am Carrie Valdez. I'm over at The Ohio State University. I'd like to introduce my co-host, Lucy, if you'd introduce yourself and where you're from. Hi, I'm Lucy Rungvorovat. I'm one of the faculty at the Yale School of Medicine. We have two awesome guests. Thank you so much for joining us. Caroline, why don't we start with you? Yes, thank you so much for uh, welcoming us to the podcast. I'm Caroline Park. I'm at Southwestern uh, Medical Center, Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, Texas. And Nick? I'm Nick Namias. I'm the Chief of Trauma and Surgical Critical Care at the University of Miami, Jackson Memorial Medical Center, the Ryder Trauma Center is how most of you might know it as. Awesome. Let's get started. All right. First things first. Uh, Nick, will you explain to us what is going on? What is the uh, the email that I got from my hospital? I'm sure you've gotten it from your hospital that there's something going on with IV contrast that's impacting our ability to order CAT scans. Basically, there are two major suppliers, as I understand it, for iodinated contrast. And one of them, GE, which is uh, the maker that a lot of centers use, has its plant completely shut down in Shanghai by COVID. And uh, with that plant shut down, um, centers that use that brand are either close to out of contrast at this point, if not completely out of contrast. So if your supplier is GE, you've got no contrast, including your contrast for CTs, your oral contrast, all of the contrast. Um, If your supplier is the other company, they make theirs in Europe and you're feeling nothing. So Nick, do you think that this creates a little bit of a dichotomy between centers that might source their uh, contrast from GE versus those that get it from Europe? Yeah, huge dichotomy because for instance, we have uh, in our health system, we have the University of Miami system and we have the Jackson Memorial system and the University of Miami system sources it from the other company. So literally on two sides of the street across the way, one hospital is trying to figure out how to get by without contrast, and the other is using contrast for everybody who has a cough for a hiccup. And uh, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, I think at the highest levels, they're negotiating how to maybe share some, but the, uh, the, the, the distributor is, you know, onto all of this and can't take on new customers and can't increase the, uh, the shipments to the regular hospitals that are their usual customers. You're definitely seeing the same thing. Um, we were hearing sort of whispers a few weeks ago, and then it became official, um, you know, recently 
Um, same thing as you've experienced emails um, coming all the way from like the chief of staff and every division has, you know, um, communicated this as well. Um, not, and not only inpatient, but also outpatient, because certainly a lot of CT scans are also done as an outpatient. Uh, so we are certainly uh, experiencing the shortage. And um, even within the last week, we've been able to kind of shuffle around um, sort of how we triage um, this for non-urgent CT scans that are done as an outpatient, pretty much the majority of those have been postponed um, until we were able to get our um, contrast um, you know, supplies back up to speed. Yeah, you mentioned our triage, which I, I have to say, I was quite impressed with how, how quickly information was disseminated and then how quickly we were able to triage. And, and I'm wondering if, if you've noticed maybe our hospitals are a little more nimble after the pandemic experience, because we, over the past couple of years, have had shortages of something. It seems like happening every few weeks and the importance of that something really has varied, right? Whether it was um, a mask that was critical or maybe something that was not critical or something that could be substituted. Uh, how have you been involved with either your supply chains and certainly Nick, you sound like you're more involved kind of at a higher level than, than I have been. Uh, how have you seen hospitals respond to these shortages now? You know, when you're talking about IV contrast or, or oral contrast from one supplier, we're sort of stuck in this, you know, oligopoly situation where there's, you know, two makers and our makers down and, we're out of luck. So um, we are we are definitely short. Our administration is definitely trying to source some, but I don't know. I don't know what kind of success they're going to have. Have you seen any talk about going to alternate agents, or have you used any alternate agents? We have not used alternate agents yet. I think they're, you know, I guess, and and this has not come. This has not uh, happened yet. But I guess the other suggestion would be, or, or would be to see if we could work with other centers in your area, whether it's across the street or in the same city to um, set aside a supply in an emergency, for example, if there's like a mass casualty or something happened, it's just a matter of, you know, maybe there's some centers that just don't have as much volume, you know, potentially thinking about like sort of on a bigger system level, if there are ways to sort of shuttle some of those those um, supplies around in case. I want to get back to the alternate agents though, because there, there are alternate agents that we haven't done, but our radiologists are aware of. For instance, you probably didn't know you can use gadolinium in a CAT scan. Uh, the, 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 the scanner has to have a different protocol, different setup uh, you know, with their radiation, but you can do it with gadolinium. Ours doesn't want to do that because they want to save it for the MRIs. But I'm sure if, if we ever push came to shove, you know, CAT scans frequently are more important to get than, than MRIs. And uh, things like um, um, carbon dioxide, uh, you know, bubbles for, for some uh, IR procedures, uh, and even the use of contrast-enhanced ultrasound, like the cardiologists do contrast um, echocardiograms. And in other parts of the world, they use contrast-enhanced ultrasound for, for trauma and for other surgical things. Uh, although most of us are not trained in and we haven't validated in this country contrast enhanced ultrasounds and the machines have to be reset different protocols uh, in the machines but there are alternatives for us the best alternative though is learning how to do without and getting back to your hands eyes ears and your routine ultrasound so we've had some um, 
constraints, we'll say, <laughs> on the system for forever, right? We, we, we don't always have access to every single modality available. And this gets back to what you're talking about, like physical exam findings, clinical findings. Um, when we have restrictions, whether it's OR availability, transport times due to um, either staff or weather, um, how do you document these kinds of things? Like, is there a need or an expectation that we need to have some kind of documentation in the chart? I made this decision based on a CAT scan without contrast, even though last week I would have asked for a CAT scan with contrast. Is that necessary? Or can I simply make the decision in the chart, document what's available to me today, and that's adequate enough? I think, I think in some ways we're kind of swinging back to what happened during the real bad waves of COVID where, you know, we were not able to take our, our, you know, appendectomy or appendicitis patients to the OR 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 not diverticulitis per se, but cholecystitis. And we did have to document then um, the indication take the patient to the OR while we had to use the resources, right? Like like that, that came from, that came from like, you know, very, very high levels. So I, while that has not been instituted and that has not been something that our institution has requested of us. I think for my practice, if we ever do get to the point where maybe I was, you know, um, hard pressed to, to, to do a non-contrast CT simply because there were no, there was no IV uh, contrast whatsoever that um, I would document a discussion I had with the patient that I did pursue a non-contrast CT scan with the caveat that, you know, possibly there was a, um, a solid organ injury that I may not be able to see at that time, but that the alternative would be to pursue a, um, you know, a observation overnight, um, serial hemoglobins, exams, things like that. But yes, in my practice, I would do that if, if it came to that point, um, simply because, you know, the IV contrast shows us if there's a pseudoaneurysm or something else going on, right? And that, you know, yes, it might take a little bit more time for me to diagnose that, but the, but that I would have to pursue an alternative, which is observation, physical exams, going back to what we had to do decades ago. In my mind, if you're doing something that's acceptable, reasonable, uh, within a standard of care that doesn't involve a, a pan scan, I personally wouldn't document that I'm limited because of a contrast shortage. To me, that's like a red flag. Because um, I think it's, it's totally acceptable uh, to do a lot of things without the, the, the pan scan. Yeah, it might, length, it might increase the length of stay. You might end up keeping them in the hospital now overnight where you might have sent them home sooner. But I don't think you have to defend yourself against that. So I'm, I'm not for routine um, documentation that I did something less than perfect because I can't get contrast. Because then they're just going to ask you, Dr. Why didn't you try harder to get contrast? So as long as it's available, I'm not documenting unless I get to a position where I have to have it and it's just not available. On that note of have to have it not available, um, there's going to be, as the supply chain comes back, generally speaking, the larger hospitals will get supply chain back sooner than the smaller hospitals. So we will be in a, in a disparity situation where the bigger hospitals have supply, the smaller hospitals do not. When you're in a smaller hospital now, are we, is there an expectation that for patient care to be equitable, should smaller hospitals then be shipping patients up to the tertiary care centers because now these centers are back in full supply? I think the most common sense thing would be that we just share things, but we don't live in that kind of country sometimes. Um, but since we are so inclined to transfer people, I, I think the natural 
course will be that patients are just simply being transferred. Um, but again, I think, I hope that we have learned enough lessons from the pandemic that mass casualty systems are more robust. We are better at communicating things. We are better at knowing what our inventory is, that we can communicate with other folks to be like, hey, I'm getting low on my contrast, not waiting until the day that you have one bottle left in the entire radiology department. And that people will learn from those lessons and be able to reach out to, to other folks saying, hey, I'm in a crisis right now. What do we do? Do we transfer people to you or do we, can we get some more contrast? Um, and I think that that conversation should be done now and not when we're having that crisis at that point. Um, but yes, I mean, of course, the safest thing should be done for the patient, which would likely be to just transfer the patient. Nick, do you have any yeah. recommendations for people if, for somebody who's bleeding, what are some alternate um, imaging studies or techniques that you can recommend to folks? Well, what we've actually done already is uh, say a pelvic fracture. So a lot of times a, radio a pelvic fracture who's uh, not stable and uh, your fast exam is negative. So it's not a laparotomy. Um, we, have, we have actually gone to you know, arguing with the interventional radiologist who usually wants a CTA first to to figure out where to go. And we, at this point, we tell them, let's just go straight to IR. Like, let's skip that, why double contrast this? Like the patient's unstable, almost no matter what this CTA shows, I'm still gonna want you to, to, to uh, go ahead and, and embolize this. So uh, we have gone bypassing the CTA going straight to IR. And there are other options. I mean, we, we're, we're actually pretty liberal users of uh, preperitoneal pelvic packing. Usually not to the exclusion of IR, but if you can get control with the packing, you know, that's fine. And maybe push the orthopedist a little harder to get the, the binder on. And I, I'm just not an expert. I don't know what they can do with carbon dioxide, like if that's something they can do a pelvis with or not. I don't know of any hospitals that I've spoken with colleagues yet where we're, we're out of contrast, like there's none left in the building, right? So the level one most important urgent imaging that needs contrast, my understanding from whom I've spoken to is everyone's still getting those. The routine um, follow-up imaging as an outpatient can be delayed for a month or two. That's not really getting anybody's attention. It's those middle of the road cases where we'd really prefer the contrast and they're asking us to either do it non-con or delay cases as outpatients or things that are in the hospital, they're asking us not to use any more contrast. Those are the ones that are, that are getting kind of sticky, right? So those are the maybe mesenteric ischemia, maybe you're looking for that abscess postoperatively. Uh, I think those are the cases that, that we're having the, the biggest difficulty with um, in finding alternative um, imaging uh, and modalities of what to do with them. There's not a question in there. Those are just my, well, my thoughts on the yeah, world. But, but I, have a, I have a comment there. I mean, there's, there used to be a t-shirt and a sign that was like kind of a joke when they were uh, ticketing kids for skateboarding in places. There was a t-shirt that said, skateboarding is not a crime. And, and I always tell my group, you know, surgery is not a crime and open surgery is not a crime. So, you know, like there's, there are algorithms out there that call for CAT scans of anterior abdominal stab wounds. And I don't, I don't agree with that at all. You know, an anterior abdominal CAT scan, uh, an anterior abdominal stab wound can be uh, admitted, observed, can have a DPL, can have a, a wound exploration, can have serial exams. So there's a whole bunch of contrast that we don't need to use that we can skip using. So I, I think there's alternatives, um, you know, admitting, observing, operating. Those are all okay because for any given surgeon, 
you know, you have to take off your, your, your prima donna, you know, outfit sometimes and, and understand that your diagnosis of something esoteric is nowhere near as important to contrast the need for that STEMI later on tonight. Right. And so, so, you know, I, I willingly acceded to my uh, CEO that STEMIs are first, right? That's where you need contrast because you can really save people acutely. And I would much rather observe someone for a day in the hospital because I couldn't get a contrast CT, right? You can observe them. You can an ultrasound the liver looking for, looking for pseudoaneurysm. There's a lot of choices we have. But when you're having a STEMI, you need contrast to get your balloon or your stent. I like to think that we're the highest on the totem pole as trauma surgeons, but sometimes, you know, I think the neuro IR guy needs, needs a contrast to, to treat a stroke, you know, with the neuro interventional things and the cardiologist needed for the STEMIs. We're, we have other options, observation, surgery, laparoscopy, time, time usually sorts it out for us. And we need to save the contrast for the ones we really have to embolize. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think I would also put like, you know, our uh, vascular surgeons who have to deal with like ruptured triple A's and, you know, the vast majority of what they do now is endovascular. And so, yes, they absolutely need that contrast to, to do diagnose and to also treat um, and to kind of go along the, you know, contrast enhanced ultrasounds. That's something that we routinely used um, in my, in, in Los Angeles during fellowship, but it was really more for surveillance, right. And for solid organ injuries, it's not going to be something that I'm going to reach for when the patient's, you know, presenting in the trauma bay, because number one, I'm not familiar with it. I can't do it myself. And number two, it's really only available during daylight hours. So although it is a nice technique, um, I think it's really true. I think it's usually um, used for surveillance purposes and looking for pseudoaneurysms um, and whatnot. So are we ever going to get to that point? Maybe, but just like anything else, you don't really know how useful it is or how critical it is until you really start using it a lot. And if it's something that can actually truly replace something like a CTA. There's also the question you brought up earlier about this is not just IV contrast, this is oral contrast. And so there's certainly some situations, particularly in the emergency general surgery world, where we could probably alter our scanning technique or maybe ultrasound uh, instead. Are there any other alternate agents or alternate studies that you have experience with? Yeah, I'll edit that one out, unfortunately, for patient privacy but i hear your point oh really wow yeah. it's that it's that collect uh, collectible uh, connectable i right, just bummer. do it for, for your protection <laughs> okay i didn't realize it was that connectable okay well thank you i don't know man we all get sued together <laughs> yeah all right fine edit out hey trauma's a team would you like me to, <laughs> would you like me to re re rephrase it more generically is it of any interest yeah no i think it's great yep okay i'll rephrase it uh, to be more general so, you know, I think instead of alternate agents, sometimes what we can do is alternate thinking. Like for instance, if there's a study you're doing just for your peace of mind, but won't change interventions, then I don't think it should be done. People will do, uh, say, after, say after trauma, some people will, uh, before they pull the Foley a week later, they might do a repeat, they might do a cystogram to see there's no leak. Well, if you left a JP, you know, the, there's no leak. You don't need to do a cystogram. People will routinely do these uh, contrast studies to see their esophageal anastomosis, like pharyngoesophageal anastomosis or gastroesophageal anastomosis. If the patient's doing well and it's been a week, you know, maybe we don't really need that study. Maybe you don't really need to diagnose 
the tiny contained leak that isn't making the patient sick anyway. Because what are you going to do with it? Reoperate? What are you going to do? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I'm actually in the SICU this week and I, I always, you know, tell the trainees and fellows, I'm like, if you want to get something, you have to be prepared to do something with that information. Like, don't go on an expedition looking for stuff because I guarantee you're going to find something. And then now you're trying to scratch your head thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? You know, patients are already on every single antibiotic you can think of. Like, you know, what's, what's going to change? What's going to change your management? Actually, one thing I wanted to ask you guys was, um, you know, people are like, well, why don't I just get one contrast scan of one body part? Like, maybe I'll save a little bit of contrast for people. So I actually didn't know the answer to this. So I asked our radiologist, but you know, it's, you don't save a whole lot, but I just wanted to kind of see what your thoughts were on that. Like limited scans, do the whole body. What do you think? Yeah. Once, so my radiologist told me once you've popped the top, you've basically used it. So you can do the whole thing. Now they are, they are playing with um, using the, the vial for multiple doses, you know, like um, drawing it up, uh, you know, in a sterile fashion, obviously, and preserving the other half for some limited amount of time. But in general, his answer to me was once you've popped it open, you've used it. If you're going to use it, might as well get everything. And our answer is to just not use it. Go back to a good exam. Like for instance, for all these patients that we knew were going to get a pan scan and I watch the resident like log roll the patient and now start palpating every vertebra for tenderness. Like to me, that's just theatrics. I mean, you're about to get a scan, man. Like we don't need to do this, but now the, the tide has turned. Now it's like carefully palpate every vertebra and we'll see which ones we need to image. And that of course can be a non-contrast CT. The other one is pediatrics um, with kids. You know, with adults, sometimes you might say, you know, let's go ahead and do a, a non-contrast CT. And if we find a, a major solid organ injury, maybe it can be repeated with contrast if we think we need to, to, to guide some embolization. But my radiology uh, folks have opined that uh, with children, we're probably better off to waste the contrast so that we don't double radiate them. And so that's, you know, this is uncharted territory. But if it's a kid who otherwise you would have scanned, uh, they're saying, go ahead and use the contrast so we don't double radiate them. Speaking of limiting contrast to adults, I'm going to put in a plug for a previous trauma cast where we discussed uh, whether or not contrast-induced nephropathy is a thing. If there's any listener out there who enjoys statistics, I would like somebody to look back on this uh, time in our lives when we reduced our use of contrast and see if there's a reduction in nephropathy at the same time and see if we can finally lay to rest whether or not contrast has anything to do with uh, contrast-induced nephropathy. I think we, we, might, we might finally have a, a very brief window where we can figure this out. This might be the largest, you know, sort of prospective trial on that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it'd long, be great. How long do we think this prospective trial will go on for? A uh, month and a half, two months. That's a yeah. lot of scans. If, if it's happening to everybody, it's a lot of scans, but we'll have a lot of people who weren't exposed to contrast. And it'd be interesting if they have the same incidence of uh, AKI as the ones who were exposed to contrast. Mm-hmm. Will be. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us tonight. And for Lucy, for helping on, I, I appreciate it. Uh, it's a quick and fast trauma cast, but I hope that uh, it, it can shed some light on the story, especially if if, uh, if you're a, a listener who happens to be at a hospital where this has not impacted you yet, uh, it might be coming your way and maybe you can preemptively um, get ready and, and help your hospital be prepared. 
if it is happening to you, maybe we've given you some ideas and, uh, and some better ways to, to manage it. Um, and we will be posting a couple of show notes with some um, resources, including a recent article that was published in the American Journal of Radiology just a couple of days ago uh, with their, uh, their thoughts on it. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer, and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, Remember, all you need to do is look to the east.